Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Swiftin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 404, this week in space history for December 9th to the 15th. I'm John Mulnix. Let's get to some space history. On December 9th, 2006, STS-116 launched on an ISS assembly mission. One of my favorite pictures of astronauts performing an EVA was taken during this mission, and I've linked to it in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. I can't imagine what it's like to float in your own personal spacecraft. It has to be one of the most profoundly beautiful experiences known to humans. During this mission, the Space Shuttle Discovery delivered American astronaut Sunita Williams to the International Space Station. She spent time in orbit as part of the Expedition 14 crew after arriving to the station on Discovery. I've talked about Sunita Williams before, way back in episode 195. She's the astronaut that ran the Boston Marathon from space during her stay on the International Space Station. She ran about nine and a half miles during the time it took the station to complete one orbit of Earth. On December 10th, 1998, the astronauts and cosmonaut on board the shuttle Endeavour entered the International Space Station for the first time. The objective of this mission was to launch and install the first American space station module, which is the Unity node. American astronaut Bob Cabana and Russian cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev entered the Unity node, the first time that anyone had entered the station while it was in orbit. At the time of recording this episode, astronauts and cosmonauts have spent 19 years, 1 month, and 8 days on board the station. Now, let's head to Taurus Littrow and Apollo 17. Astronauts Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt touched down at the Taurus-Littrow region on December 11, 1972. Astronaut Ronald Evans stayed in orbit on the command module America, while Cernan and Schmidt were on the lunar surface. The Apollo 17 press kit notes that the, quote, Taurus-Littrow landing site is named for the Taurus Mountains and the Littrow Crater, located in a mountainous region southeast of the Serenititis Basin. Dominant features of the landing site are three rounded hills, or massifs, surrounding the relatively flat target point and a range of what lunar geologists describe as sculptured hills. Cernan and Schmidt spent 75 hours on the moon, conducting three EVAs on the surface. Each EVA lasted at least seven hours and saw the astronauts deploy experiments and gather surface samples. Harrison Schmidt is a geologist, and since Apollo 17 was the last crewed lunar mission, it was decided that he would replace the original lunar module pilot, Joe Engel. Engel had flown the X-15 and would go on to fly the space shuttle, becoming the only astronaut to operate those two types of winged spacecraft. 
I want to talk about something that's not always touched on when discussing the Apollo missions, crew comfort and efficiency during an EVA. I read Harrison Schmidt's oral history interview a few years ago, and I was struck by some of the uncomfortable challenges that the astronauts dealt with during these lunar EVAs. Harrison states that, quote, The other part of the glove that was a problem is that no matter how closely you cut your fingernails, every time you reach for something or moved in that glove, you would tend to scrape your nail against the bladder of the suit, the rubber bladder. I even wore liners, nylon liners, to reduce that, but still you would do that, and gradually you'd lift the nail off the quick. That's painful to some degree while you're working, but it gets particularly painful after you've gotten out of the suit and then you prepare for the next day. Schmidt continued that, quote, Now, both of these things are things that are there. Yes, that's discomfort. It's sore. You wish it wasn't there, but it sort of fades into the background because of the stimulus of everything else that's going on. But still, from an efficiency of a hard engineering efficiency point of view, we've got to do better with the gloves. It's not a stretch to imagine that spacesuit gloves would prevent fine motor control. However, losing your fingernails in this manner sounds like a really raw deal. Let's head back to Earth for this next piece of history. The Oscar-1 satellite launched on December 12, 1961 aboard a Thor Agena rocket from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Oscar-1 is notable because it was the first amateur satellite to be launched into space, as well as the first sub-satellite to be launched along with a primary payload, in this case, a reconnaissance satellite. The primary payload, Discoverer 36, was designed to test systems that could be used for nuclear detonation detection. Oscar stands for Orbiting Satellite Carrying Amateur Radio, and all this satellite consisted of is a radio transmitter that broadcast the message HI in Morse code for 22 days. Oscar 1 was battery-powered and had one nearly two-foot-long antenna that transmitted until the batteries were depleted. The satellite was made out of magnesium, an exceptionally strong and lightweight metal. Oscar 1 was created as a volunteer project, and the entire material cost, not including parts that were donated, was $68 in 1961 U.S. dollars. I've got two more satellites I want to talk about in today's episode. The first is Relay 1, which was an active communications satellite that launched a few months after the AT&T Bell Labs Telstar satellite. Relay 1 launched on December 13, 1962, and it operated until 1965. Relay 1 was a communications satellite that was a part of a larger project to test communications across continents. These early communications satellites transmitted TV and telephone signals, in addition to data channels for radiation instruments included on board the satellite. The second satellite I want to mention is Pioneer 8, which launched on December 13, 1967. It entered a heliocentric orbit, which is an orbit around the Sun, Pioneer 8 studied interplanetary space, specifically magnetic fields, plasma, and cosmic rays, according to a NASA mission overview page. On December 15, 1965, Gemini 6A launched on a very short mission to test the rendezvous techniques that were critical for the Apollo program. Gemini 6 had a launch abort just a few days prior to liftoff. One second after the Titan engines ignited, an electrical connection came loose, causing the engines to shut down. 
Luckily for astronauts Wally Schirra and Thomas Stafford, the Titan didn't rise off the pad, which would have resulted in an explosion that could have killed them. Also, they didn't eject from the capsule when the abort happened because they hadn't felt any upward motion. Thankfully, the crew stayed put, which allowed them to launch just a few days later on the 15th. Once in space, Gemini 6A met up with Gemini 7 for nearly five and a half hours, and the crews took turns maneuvering around each other's spacecraft. The pictures of the Gemini 6A and 7 spacecraft are some of my favorite of the entire Gemini program. After spending just under 26 hours in space, Shara and Stafford re-entered the atmosphere, splashing down in the Atlantic Ocean, where they were recovered by the USS Wasp. Lastly, for December 15th, SpaceX launched CRS-13 to the International Space Station on December 15th, 2017. In the CRS-13 webcast, SpaceX confirmed that the soot from re-entry will stay on the first-stage boosters going forward unless it's deemed beneficial to repaint parts of that first stage. The first-stage booster that was used in the CRS-13 launch originally supported the CRS-11 launch. Also of note, this was the second time that SpaceX reused a Dragon capsule, the booster that supported CRS-13 will be on display at Space Center Houston. Before we end today, I want to cover a piece of space history that we weren't able to cover last week. On December 6, 1957, the Vanguard Test Vehicle 3 attempted a launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Unfortunately, the launch was not successful. For more on this mission, I've got Richard Easton back to talk about his connection with this early American mission. Enjoy. And today we are lucky to have uh, Richard Easton on again. We're going to be talking about something different than GPS this time. Um, Richard has, he's been sharing some just incredible pictures with me um, of Vanguard, um, the Vanguard One satellite and his family. So Richard, tell our listeners what uh, what your connection to Vanguard is. Well, my father, Roger Easton, started working on the space program in 1952. He joined the Naval Research Lab in 43. And in the late 40s, they started their Viking rocket sounding uh, program, not to be confused with the later NASA soft landing on Mars. And uh, he joined them in 52. And then in 55, there was the International Geophysical Year, and all three services put for, forth proposals to launch the first satellite. Uh, Dad co-wrote the Navy's proposal, which ended up winning over Von Braun. And um, so they, they started Project Vanguard. Um, for that, he worked on the mini-track tracking system, which was used to track the satellites, and also the small test vehicle satellites. So the full uh, uh, Vanguard 2, I think, was like 20 inches, 20 inches across, weighed 20 pounds. I think Vanguard 3 was 50 pounds. But for the early launches, they put uh, Air Force Colonel Asa Gibbs suggested, why don't you put a satellite on it? You can tell if it worked. So he uh, designed the test vehicle satellites, which uh, about six and a half inches, weighed three and a half pounds, that were on TV3, which yesterday 
December 6th, we uh, celebrated the 62nd anniversary of it blowing up on the pad. Um, but the, the Hope 4 satellite TB3 survived. And uh, after it cooled down, uh, one of Dad's colleagues, Marty Votaw, brought it to Dad and said, what should we do with it? And Dad said, well, I guess bring it back. So he put it in a wood box, bought a seat for it on a commercial flight back to Washington. Um, it sat in our house overnight, and you can now see it at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. Um, the actual exhibit shows a picture in front of it of Marty and my father examining it in um, 2008 when they celebrated the successful launch of Vanguard 1. I was two when TV3 blew up and, uh, and subsequently Vanguard 1 launched successfully. So I'm afraid I don't have personal memories of it, but there's a six-second clip which we took a picture from that shows two three-second clips of myself and my brother and three sisters arranged around it. And I've got a coat on, red coat. It looks like late winter in Washington. So it was probably a week or two before the launch. And dad used to tinker with it on our dining room table. I told that story to some people and they're, you know, thinking of, of, uh, all the clean rooms, et cetera. In, uh, in 1957-58, you, <laughs> you were worried that, you know, would the, um, would the satellite successfully um, launch from the third stage in Vanguard or the fourth stage in Explorer, and would its transmitter turn on? Uh, those were the critical elements. So at that point, you could uh, you could bring an actual U.S. satellite. Vanguard One's the fourth one to reach orbit and the oldest one out there. And I was about a foot away from it when I was two years old. That's so cool. So yeah, that's the kind of things that just the ties to the space program. I mean, it's something that, you know, people, you know, they always bring their work back home with them, you know, nowadays, but literally back in the early days of the space race, the actual work was brought back home in some cases. So I just, I love that picture. And that's why I wanted to bring it up uh, for this episode. Cause when you sent me that picture of you sitting on the bench with the satellite, I just, I started cracking up because that is just one of the coolest pictures I think I've ever seen. And Inevitably, uh, in summer 62, we went to Santa Barbara for a strategic defense initiative program that my father was working on. And um, that summer, we met Charlie Bossert, who designed the Atlas rocket. So, uh, And last year, I went to his daughter-in-law's birthday party in San Francisco, and there were Bossert grandchildren and great-grandchildren all over the place. So. You know, these, these, you know, the, the scientists make connections and their kids make connections. Yeah. Uh, it's just, that's one of the things the space, space flight community is very closely knit and it's everybody knows at least, you know, a couple, there's six degrees of separation. You know, it's, it's even closer. I feel like in the aerospace community. Yes. In the sixties, I knew PVH Weems who knew one of the pioneers in airplane navigation and, um, he knew Orville Wright. So Orville Wright, I think, died in 48. 
seven years before my birth, but you know, two degrees of separation. Yeah, which is just incredible. Well, Richard, thank you so much uh, for sharing uh, this little uh, extra piece of space history with everyone. We really appreciate it. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for listening. And that is it for this week. I do have a call in number. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.